why don't we get started? Like I said before, really appreciate you guys being here. Uh, I'm very excited to be doing this in person again. Um, some of you were probably part of and remember uh, we did this a couple of times and we were in the middle of eschatology when the pandemic hit, but that obviously was March of 2020. So it's been a while since we've done it. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer and then just explain a couple of practical things before we actually get into more of the, the biblical content tonight. But Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to gather here in person on a Wednesday night. Uh, I want to thank you so much for the folks who are here. Uh, thank you for the folks who are on their way. And thank you also for the folks who are joining us on Zoom. And Father, more than anything, we're just grateful that you promised to be here with us. And we know, Lord, that you take delight when your people gather in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, that is why we are here. We are gathered here tonight because of your son, Jesus. And Lord, even though we are going to be specifically talking about eschatology, uh, how you present these ideas to us in scripture, uh, the heart of every gathering should always be, and hopefully tonight will be, your son and the honor that he will receive, the glory that he will receive, and that's what we hope will happen tonight. Father, as we often do when we start a Wednesday together on Zoom, I just want to ask you for wisdom, Lord God, uh, particularly as we deal with some, some themes that maybe are a little bit more challenging, um, require a little bit more from us. Uh, Lord, just remind us that we really have only one teacher, and that is you. And we just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be willing tonight uh, to teach us, to give us your wisdom, to give us your perspective, to help us to rightly understand your word. And so, Jesus, it is in your name and it is for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, again, we had two sheets on the, the table right by the uh, entrance here. Uh, please make sure you grab both of them. Um, we will be using those kind of as the guide tonight of the material that we will try to cover. Um, Howard already asked, wisely so, if we're going to try to get through all of it. If we do get through all of it tonight, that's great. If we don't get through all of it tonight, we will pick it up where we leave off uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, just from a practical standpoint, we are going to leave the front door locked. So if more folks are coming and ring the bell, if one of you would just be willing to get the front door and let them in. But we will keep it locked just because that way, if there's anyone that needs help, um, we can help them at the door instead of having them come all the way in. Um, also, a practical note, right in front of Abilio is the portable microphone. So we definitely want questions, we want comments, we want participation from all of you. And so we will be using that wireless microphone. It does have an on-off button. Um, so just make sure that it is on and we will pass it around. Uh, one thing that Carl wants us to be aware of is that if you set it on the table, it will very easily roll right off the table. That's why it's placed on the pillow, like a, a wedding ring. Oh, do we have do we have like a ring boy or a ring bearer that's going to pass the microphone around? So, so if you are in person and you have a question or you have a comment, just make sure you wait till the microphone gets to you, turn it on, and speak into the microphone. And of course, if you are on Zoom and you have a question or a comment, just indicate to Carl that you have one, and Carl will indicate that to me, and we'll turn you on so the folks here can hear. So I realize. It may be a little cumbersome doing a hybrid format, but Carl is very skilled and he's going to make it completely and totally smooth. 
but my heart is that you know we really focus on the content and if there are some technical issues or some snags that we hit we'll just work through those as best as we can so again the two sheets that hopefully you picked up that were in the table on the back uh, the first one is just called eschatology introduction so hopefully for some of you this is going to be a bit of a review because um, I did rework the material that we covered when we did this two and a half years ago, but did make some changes, some different passages of scripture we're gonna look at, but it's, it's roughly the same material that we covered when we started two years ago. So again, the sheet that you have here is just a, a definition of the word eschatology. Um, and just a general comment about words like this, there, there is value in using words like this just because it's helpful to kind of capture things that can take a long time to keep explaining. But these words are only valuable if the person using them and everyone hearing them actually understands it. So sometimes words can be chosen that are, are really good words and useful words, but if people don't understand what they mean, then it's not really that helpful. So obviously we're gonna be using the word eschatology a bit in this class. That's not really a word we use in, in everyday conversation usually. Um, and so it's important that we just understand what this word means and why it is helpful for what we're gonna be talking about. So eschatology actually is sort of a combination of two Greek words. Um, the Greek word eschatos and the Greek word logos. And the Greek word eschatos on its own usually just means last or final. Um, it's a very common word. There's nothing super theologically significant about it. It's a word that occurs fairly frequently in the New Testament. Uh, the Greek word logos, again, as it is used in the New Testament, has a pretty broad range of meaning, but oftentimes refers to something that is spoken. So logos can at times simply mean a word, but it can mean a book as well. And then it even has a broader definition than that. It can mean just a thing or a matter. And so the word eschatology comes from putting these two together. And so eschatology is the word about the last things. So the definition that we will be using of eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. The doctrine of the last things. And again, the word doctrine, a great synonym for that is just the word teaching. So eschatology is the teaching about the last things or the doctrine of the last things. Now, generally speaking, when you look at biblical scholarship, there's three basic approaches to this. The most common and the one that probably enters into our mind is the idea that the kingdom is future. So oftentimes when you hear the word eschatology or when you see something like the doctrine of the last things, we may think of the book of Revelation. We may think of that you know, period of time right at the end 
just before Jesus comes or depending on how you break things down before and after Jesus comes. But oftentimes it is viewed as something that is, is focusing primarily on the future. There are theological camps that focus on the kingdom being present. And so when they talk about eschatology, they don't so much talk about the end of the world and things like that. They talk about the kingdom being present right now. There is a third position, which you can probably guess, which combines these two. And it focuses on the idea of the kingdom being present and the kingdom being future. And this is actually the position that we are going to adopt from our examination of scripture. And so really, with a subject like eschatology, it's a lens through which you can almost read the entirety of scripture. You know, one of the amazing things about the scriptures are you can pick a theme and you can kind of read the entirety of scripture through that theme. So say, take the theme of faith. You know, you can start all the way in Genesis and work through Revelation, just looking for how does the Bible present faith or God saving humanity. You know, you could take that theme and really start in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation and read the Bible through the lens of how does God save humanity? The problem of sin. Again, so in other words, you can take a theme and almost see the entirety of scripture through that lens, and that becomes a very valuable way to study the scriptures. So when we kind of move beyond eschatology just being, you know, a few chapters in Daniel, a few chapters in uh, Zechariah, maybe the end of Ezekiel, we're reading that now in the book of Revelation, what we actually have is eschatology is a lens through which we can view the entirety of scripture. And in fact, you know, in the next couple of months, as we explore this more carefully, I think we're going to see that that really is a biblical way to approach this topic. But again, for our purposes, when we use the phrase or the word eschatology, it's going to be referring to the doctrine of the last things. Okay, so let me just pause here to see if there are any questions or comments up to this point. Everything is clear. Okay, would someone be willing to look up that first Peter passage and read that for us? Hold on, hold on one second, Ted. Remember, we need the microphone on and speaking into the microphone. So this is first Peter chapter one, verses 10 to 12. First Peter chapter one verses 10 to 12. And does everyone see where we are on the sheet here? Uh, the forward-looking perspective of the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Everyone sees that? Again, I, don't, I, I forgot if you wanted to try to share this as a document on Zoom. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll try to put all of the passages that are on the sheet in front of the folks in person on the board so hopefully folks on Zoom can see that. So now, Ted, please, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating 
as he was predict as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you to those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, so in terms of what we are talking about, the reason why I picked this passage to begin, it's a New Testament passage, obviously, 1 Peter, but it's under the heading, the forward-looking perspective of the Old Testament. Again, as you study and read the books of the Old Testament, one of the things that you realize is the Old Testament is constantly looking to the future. It's constantly looking forward. It's presenting hope. We see this particularly in the books known as the prophets. So beginning with Isaiah, working through to Malachi. Now, the vast majority of what the Old Testament prophets wrote about was the current situation in which they found themselves. But they certainly had a forward vision. They were regularly looking to the future and talking about the things that God would do. So one of the things that we want to establish is that as we study and read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is forward looking, okay? And there were certain things that were dominant on the horizon for the Old Testament prophets. So what Peter tells us here is that the Old Testament prophets, they realized that they were not prophesying for themselves. It's interesting because he specifically says when they prophesied about the glory of Christ and the suffering of Christ that was being revealed to them through the spirit of Christ. A very, very interesting evaluation. So as we are reading the book of Ezekiel right now, it was the spirit of Christ that was stirring in him when he prophesied and wrote the things that we are reading. Now, even though the name of Christ, of course, is not mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, it was the spirit of Christ that was stirring in Ezekiel. And of course, particularly beginning in chapter uh, 33 and on, Ezekiel's prophecy is dominated by a hope for the future. He is looking to the future. He is looking to something that is going to come. And according to Peter, at some point, Ezekiel realized, this is not for me. This is not for me. I'm not going to live to see this. In fact, what Peter says is that the Old Testament prophets were actually serving us. They were serving the New Testament community of believers. So at some point in his ministry, Isaiah realized, I'm not going to live to see this fulfilled. Jeremiah realized, I'm not going to live to see this fulfilled. They were, it says they were longing, they were straining to know how and when these things would be fulfilled. And the spirit of Christ in them made clear to them that it was not for themselves. It was for a future generation. Well, Peter indicates in his first letter, the passage that Ted read for us, Peter indicates that we are the ones 
that the Old Testament prophets were serving. When they looked to the future and spoke about the things that God would do in the future, in fact, they were serving us. So this first passage is just sort of a, a great summary of the tone of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is straining forward. The Old Testament is looking forward. The Old Testament is completely and totally incomplete on its own. It cannot stand on its own. It has to have a fulfillment. It has to have a completion. It has to have a next account, a next move of God. And that's absolutely what Peter is talking about here. But for our purposes in studying eschatology, it's important for us to understand that eschatology begins in the Old Testament. It begins with God stirring in his servants long before Christ came about things that would happen for them in the future. In fact, one of the verses that we had on the sheet when we did this last time that I don't have right now is Genesis 3.15, which is one of the first, if not the very first, forward-looking passage of the Old, Test Old Testament, where God speaks about the seed of woman that will have his heel bruised by the serpent, but will crush the head of the serpent. Looking to a future point, a conflict between one described as the seed of woman and the serpent who later we come to realize is the devil. But right there in the third chapter of the Old Testament, when creation is still relatively new, there is a forward orientation. God is looking to the future and promising what he will do in the future. So one of the ways that we can read and understand the Old Testament is to understand that it is presenting a hope for the future. It is presenting things that God will do in the future. And that, of course, is an eschatological approach, looking to the final things, looking to the future things. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to read some passages from the prophets and look more specifically at some of the ways that they look to the future. But the second point under the forward-looking perspective of the Old Testament, I have some Old Testament phrases. So as you are reading the Old Testament, particularly when you are reading the prophets, these are phrases that you will come across fairly frequently. And these are phrases that oftentimes indicate that the Lord is speaking through the prophet about something that is coming in the future. So the concept of the day of the Lord, again, a major theme within the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord. And in a moment, we're going to read a passage from Obadiah, where Obadiah speaks of the day of the Lord. Uh, another phrase that is used, those days or coming days or at that time, or latter, or last days. These are phrases frequently used by the prophets. And if you see one of those when you are reading the Old Testament, hopefully it will signal something in you to read that passage, looking to what God was going to do in the future, looking to a promise that God was making 
about something that was going to happen on the horizon for that Old Testament community. So let's look at the first passage that we have listed here. Uh, the book of Obadiah, uh, verses 15 to 18. Obadiah 15 to 18. If someone would be willing to find that and read that for us, either someone on Zoom or someone here, just please make sure you have the microphone if you do. Obadiah only has one chapter. So oftentimes you just don't even put one down. It only has verses. So it's, it, it's just Obadiah 15 to 18. Okay. Yeah, hopefully we didn't think that we were going to have to read four chapters there. <laughs> so I will make mistakes, though. So don't, don't hesitate to ask a question or call me out on something. So Obadiah 15 to 18. Do we have someone who's willing to read that? Yes. Thank you, Abilio. You're welcome. Um, the day of the Lord is here for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as to drink on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink, and be as if they had never been, but the Mount Zion, Zion will be deliverance, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Israel will be stubble, and they will set, set it on fire and consume it. They will be no survivors from the house of Israel, the Lord. Okay, thank you, Abilio. So again, what we see there is right in verse 15, we have one of those phrases that is on the sheet just above, the day of the Lord. So here, Obadiah is speaking of the day of the Lord. Now, in the verses that Abelio read for us, how does Obadiah describe the day of the Lord? Yeah, and just make sure if you're answering the question that we get the microphone to you. How does Obadiah describe in these verses the day of the Lord? I would say a day of judgment, a day of recompense. The day when people will be, their deeds will, will return to them. So one of the major themes that we see here is that as Obadiah was speaking of the day of the Lord, he described it as a day of judgment. In the middle of verse 15, he says, as you have done, it will be done to you. All your deeds will return upon your own head. Now, who is the you that Obadiah is speaking to? Who was the main target of the prophecy of the book of Obadiah? Uh, 
A couple people said Edom, and that is correct. The main target of the prophecy of the book of Obadiah is the nation of Edom. Remember Jacob and Esau, twins? Esau was the older, Jacob the younger. Esau became the father of the nation known as Edom. And for most of the history of Edom, they were an enemy, an adversary of the nation of Israel. So part of the prophecy of Obadiah is specifically targeting Edom as one who will receive the judgment of the Lord. But we see as Obadiah is talking about the day of the Lord, it is far beyond that. Because again, looking at the opening phrase of verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. Jumping down to verse 16, just as you, Edom, drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. The reference there is probably drinking the cup of the Lord's wrath. So what you have here is something that the Old Testament loves to do. It loves to start with an individual target, in this case, the nation of Edom, and then quickly expand it, in this case, to all nations. So what Obadiah is making clear to us is that the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. It will specifically be a day when Edom is judged, but it will also be a day when all nations are judged. Okay? So right there, we have something that's very interesting in terms of time, because the nation of Edom has long since passed out of existence. It is no more. You will not meet anyone who comes from the nation of Edom or calls themselves an Edomite. They were destroyed a couple of centuries before Christ came into the world. However, we still have nations. So all the nations have not been judged yet. So that's important for us to keep that in mind. So as Obadiah is talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about a day of judgment. And specifically a day that will bring judgment upon the nation of Edom. But ultimately, the day of the Lord brings God's judgment on all nations. But the day of the Lord, according to Obadiah, is more than a day of judgment. In verses 17 and 18, how does Obadiah describe the day of the Lord? Looking, say, specifically at verse 17. How does Obadiah describe the day of the Lord in verse 17? And don't be shy if you're far away from the mic. We can get you the mic quite easily. Can we pass it to Howard? So the day of the Lord is judgment, but the day of the Lord is deliverance. Deliverance. In some ways, the exact opposite of judgment. And specifically in verse 17, it says on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. So as Obadiah was looking to the day of the Lord, he saw it as a day of judgment but he also saw it as a day of deliverance, a day of redemption. 
a day when the people of God will receive from the Lord what the Lord has promised to them. So it's very, very interesting. The day of the Lord is not a simple concept. It's a complex concept. Anytime you bring judgment and deliverance together, that's bringing two things that seem fairly far apart. But one of the ways that I understand the day of the Lord is it's simply the day the Lord shows up. Now, that's not super theological or profound, but it helps me to understand the concept of the day of the Lord as the prophets speak of it. The day of the Lord is simply the day the Lord shows up. And obviously, there is a day coming where the Lord is going to show up and judge all nations. That's part of what was on Obadiah's horizon. But there was also a near horizon where the nation of Edom was specifically going to be judged for her sins. And then mixed in with that was something very, very contradictory to that, and that was deliverance. Deliverance for the people of God. Okay? So the day of the Lord. One of the things that the Old Testament speaks of when the Old Testament is looking to the future. All right? But again, let me pause here just to see if there's comments or questions about this so far. Make sense so far? Everyone on Zoom's awake or asleep? So would someone please turn to the next passage? I believe it's Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Would someone turn there and read that for us? For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Okay, thank you, Elliot. So, the very first part of verse 1 that Elliot just read for us, what two phrases do you see there? In those days. Remember, this is one of the phrases that is signaling to us the Old Testament is looking to the future, something that is coming. Not necessarily present when Joel was prophesying it, but something is coming. In those days. And then what's the next thing he says? At that time. At that time. So again, looking above, you see those are two of the phrases. At that time, in those days. So this is exactly what we're talking about. Now in verse 1, how does Joel describe what's going to happen in those days and at that time? In verse 1, what is going to happen? So, restoration. Remember, Obadiah, when he was speaking of the day of the Lord, spoke of deliverance. Now, Joel, when he is speaking of those days, 
And at that time, he is speaking of restoration. That's verse 1. But in verse 2, how does Joel describe what's going to happen in those days and at that time? What does he say in verse 2? And judgment against who? All nations. Sounds a lot like Obadiah, right? Judgment against all nations. Now, it's interesting because Joel mentions a place, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat just simply means the Lord judges. So the valley is named for what's going to take place there. In the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord is going to judge. So as Joel is looking to the future, as Joel is looking to those days that are somewhere on the horizon, at that time, somewhere on the horizon, he is saying that, there will be restoration for Judah and Jerusalem, namely the people of God. But then all the nations are going to be gathered to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, they are going to be judged. So again, the forward-looking perspective of the Old Testament. What is on the horizon? What is God going to do in the future? Well. He's going to bring restoration, and he's going to bring judgment. Exactly like Obadiah. According to Obadiah, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment against all the nations, but it's also a day of deliverance for those on Mount Zion. Sounds very similar, hopefully. We're seeing the connection between the passage in Joel and the passage in Obadiah. Can you just repeat what Jehoshaphat means? The Lord judges. The Lord judges. Anytime you see a name in the Old Testament that begins with a J, a J-E, a J-A, almost always that is short for the name of the Lord. Sometimes we call him Yahweh. Sometimes you'll hear the name Adonai. But almost anytime you see a Old Testament name that begins with a J-E, a J-A, or a J, usually that stands for the Lord. So Jehoshaphat is the Lord judges. The Lord judges. Okay? Well, let's grab one more. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And again, if we could have a volunteer either on Zoom or here with the microphone, uh, read that for us. Malachi chapter 4, one to three. Uh, surely that day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Uh, all the arrogance and every evil doers will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, say the Lord Almighty. Not a roof or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing and, and its wings, and you will go out and, and leap like calves released from the, from the stall. Then you will tremble 
down the wicked day will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do this thing, say the Lord Almighty. Okay, thank you, Ephraim, for reading that. So again, hopefully now you see something right there at the beginning. Malachi uses a little bit different phrase, but certainly very connected to what we've been looking at. A coming day. A coming day. So again, that forward-looking gaze of the Old Testament. A coming day. The day of the Lord. In that time. In those days. Again, as you are reading the prophets in particular, look for those phrases. Because they are probably more times than not signaling the Lord speaking of something that is coming in the future. So a day is coming, a coming day. How does Malachi describe that coming day first? In verse 1, the day that is coming, what is it like? It's like a burning furnace. It's like a burning furnace. And he says all of the proud and all of the evildoers will be like stubble, will be like little pieces of straw and hay, will be the part of the grain that is left over when you've gotten the part of the grain that you want. Well, if you put little pieces of straw and hay into a burning furnace, what happens to it? Utterly consumed. So here again, is a picture that Malachi is painting for us. It is a day of wrath and judgment. Here he doesn't necessarily call it the day of the Lord, but if you look down and see verse 5, he uses that exact phrase. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So we understand that the coming day that Malachi is talking about is the day of the Lord. And again, for him, it is something that is future. It's something that is coming. It is a day of a burning furnace consuming the evildoers like stubble and chaff. But again, like we've seen, verse 2 has an incredible contrast to that. Same day, same event. The coming day in verse 2 will also be like what? For those who fear the Lord, what will this day be like? Healing. It will be a day of healing. Now again, it's, it's so hard for us to try to conceptualize this. How can a day that is a burning furnace consuming evildoers like stubble be a day of healing, be a day like the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness rising, the hope of a new day, the hope of a new dawn. And it's a day of rejoicing, a little bit strange metaphor for us, and you will go forth and leap like a calf from the stall. That's a sign of joy. That's a sign of playfulness. That's a sign of, of energetic zeal. So it's a day of healing. It's a day of hope, like the dawning of the new day. It's a day of joy. What a contrast. 
Same day. Same day. Malachi doesn't say, this is one day, burning furnace. Oh, and this is another day, healing and hope and joy. It's the same day. For Obadiah, same day. For Joel, same time. So we already have in this future-looking gaze of the Old Testament prophets, them speaking of things that normally we would see don't come together. But for Malachi, that coming day, later referenced as the day of the Lord, is like a burning furnace where the fierce wrath of God's judgment consumes the evildoers. But for those who fear the Lord, NIV says revere, but fear is, is, is there as another translation. It's a day of healing. It's a day of hope. It's a day of joy. Okay? But let me pause here to see if we have any comments or questions before we look at this last passage in Isaiah. Any comments or questions thus far? You know, I was thinking that one of the themes that links a lot of these scriptures together is it's also a day of separation. You know, it's a day when God makes a clear distinction between the, those who are on his side and those who aren't. And that's hard to think of that without thinking for me of Matthew chapter 25. You know, that the, when, when Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, he separates the sheep from the goats. So connected with the idea of judgment is, well, who's going to be judged? Because some are going to have joy and rejoicing. Others are going to go uh, in the other direction. And so it's, it's separation is kind of a key theme here, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what we've seen in these prophetic passages is obviously it is two different groups of people. It's the evildoers that are consumed like stubble in the furnace. And those who fear the Lord, it's a day of hope and it's a day of rejoicing. All of the nations will drink the cup of God's wrath, according to Obadiah. But those on Mount Zion will be delivered. Jerusalem and Judah will be restored, according to Joel, but all of the nations will be invited into the valley of God's judgment to be judged there. So absolutely, the point that Ted's making is an excellent one, a distinction or a separation. But other thoughts or questions? Yep, please, can we pass the microphone to Camille? Um, I noticed in in all of these passages, almost all of them, there's mention of, um, you know, the Jewish people specifically. Um, and then, you know, even in Isaiah 11, going down to, to verse 10, then it gets more into the nations and the peoples. Is it, am I right in thinking that there have been points in, in church history where natural Israel's inheritance in this way is kind of maybe de-emphasized or maybe even replaced by um, believers in Christ and and then kind of where is the church in that sort of interpretation now yeah no that's a it's a hugely important and significant issue um, won't take the time right now to deal with it in great detail but I would say generally speaking when we are reading the Old Testament and we come across a reference to Old Testament Israel or a reference, all the different ways they're referred to, Jerusalem, Judah, the inhabitants of Mount Zion, I would say it is right for us to read that as a passage about 
the people of God. And so we should see that as a promise now that we share in the fulfillment of. There are those that would say absolutely not, that the Old Testament prophecies that we read in the myriad of others that mention in some way Old Testament Israel are only for those who are naturally, biologically Jewish. I think that is completely wrong. Um, so as I am reading the Old Testament and reading passages like what we just read, I think it's absolutely right to see these as things that are being spoken to the people of God. So that restoration, that deliverance is promised to us as the people of God. Now, will the people of God include a portion of natural Israel? I think yes, absolutely. But I think to me, the problem is when you see those passages exclusively for natural Israel. I don't know how common it is today, but I know in the 90s, there was a theological camp in this nation that read the Old Testament that way and basically said, as members of the New Testament church, those prophecies have nothing to do with us. And I think that's a huge, you know, a huge interpretive mistake. Um, but when you get to Romans 11, I think there certainly is a strong argument that God still has a purpose for natural Israel. That's one of the most challenging New Testament passages, and there is no agreement on absolutely what Paul is getting at there. But in that case, he seems to be talking about a purpose for natural Israel, which is kind of interesting because most of the time that Paul is talking about Israel, he's talking about spiritual Israel. You know, so in Romans, he's saying the true descendants are Abraham are not those that can trace their genealogical line to him, but those who put their faith in Christ. A true Jew is not one who is circumcised outwardly, but has been circumcised in the heart. So it's, 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 it's challenging to try to understand what Paul is getting at in Romans 11. But what I would say is, for those of us who are part of the New Testament people of God, when we are reading the Old Testament and coming across any passage that's speaking of a promise made to the people of God, albeit in Old Testament terms, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, Ephraim, Zion, we absolutely should read those promises for ourselves. But that doesn't mean that the church has completely effaced any purpose that God might have for natural Israel. I think that's a mistake as well. So does that kind of help to answer that? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's an incredibly complex issue that the believing church is in sharp disagreement over. I don't know if any of you have, you know, dipped your toes in these waters, but it is, it is a heated discussion. Um, and there may be a place in this time to talk about it more, I mean, in this class, but, but not tonight. Um, so hopefully that brief summary of it at least answers Camille's excellent question. But any other thoughts or questions about what we've looked at so far before we look at Isaiah 11, uh, 1 to 9? Do we have someone who's ready to read? Isaiah 11, 1 to 9 for us. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. Uh, the, wolf will, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Uh, they will neither harm nor destroy on all, my, on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay. Thank you for reading that for us, Deborah. So, who is Isaiah talking about? Looking at verse 1, Isaiah clearly tells us the one whom he's speaking about. Who is he speaking about, according to verse 1? He's speaking, of course, of Jesus. Now, he doesn't use the name Jesus. So he says a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, hopefully, when we hear the name Jesse, we think Jesse... David's father. And of course, the promises that were made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we just looked at the last couple of weeks, you know, unbelievable promises of a king coming from the line of David. So here, very interestingly, Isaiah doesn't use the name David. Instead, he uses the name of David's father and says, Jesse. It's interesting also that he uses the image of a stump. Because what is a stump? A stump is a dead tree. So there were certainly times in Israel's history that it looked like the line of David was dead. And so certainly this is not coincidental that the spirit of Christ inspired Isaiah to talk about the stump of Jesse. Something that appears as if it's dead. But from this stump of Jesse is going to come a shoot. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. And again, the designation branch is used in other of the prophets. Jeremiah refers to the branch. Zechariah refers to the branch. So this is, again, as the Old Testament is looking forward, as the Old Testament is looking to the future, one of the things that the Old Testament prophets see is that God will send his branch. Now, how is the ministry, the character of the shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch, how is this ministry described in verses 2 to the beginning of verse 4. How does Isaiah describe the ministry of the one who will come? We need the microphone, please. He would just with justice, yeah. So he will give justice to the poor. 
looking specifically at verse 4, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Did Jesus do that 2,000 years ago? It's not a trick question. If you had to characterize the ministry of Jesus, would you rightly characterize it as one who was giving justice to the poor? Absolutely. Verse 2, how is the ministry of the shoot from the stump of Jesse described? What does verse 2 say? The spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, what happened when he came up out of the waters? The spirit. Came the down. Spirit of the Lord descended on him like a dove. Would you describe the ministry of Jesus as one that was filled with wisdom and counsel and knowledge and understanding and the fear of the Lord? Is that an accurate description of the ministry of Jesus Christ? Yes. yes. In fact, you can see that Isaiah was seeing perfectly through the Spirit of Christ in him what Jesus was going to do, what he was going to be like when he came into the world. Now, it's interesting because in the middle of verse 4, things seemed to change a little bit. Because in the second half of verse 4, what is the shoot from the stump of Jesse going to do? Slay the wicked. How? With the breath of his lips, by the word. From the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he's going to slay all the wicked. Well, if you were describing the earthly ministry of Jesus, would you say, yeah, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he slew all of the wicked. He killed all of the wicked. No. So did Isaiah get confused? What does Isaiah go on to describe beginning in verse 6? One of the most beautiful pictures painted for us in the Old Testament prophets. What does Isaiah describe in verses 6, 7, and 8? Harmony, peace, lions and lambs hanging out together, bears and sheep getting along, wolves eating grass, children playing over the holes of deadly poisonous vipers, and mom is not scared at all. Well, if you go to the Cleveland Zoo and take a sheep and throw it into the lion's cage, what's going to happen to the sheep? Is the sheep and the lion, are they going to get along well? The lion's going to get along well, but it's going to tear that sheep up. And mom, if you see your son or daughter playing over the hole of a poisonous snake, are you like, oh yeah, no worries, nothing to fear there. Oh, you're going to scream your head off and snatch the kid away. So we haven't seen that yet, right? We haven't seen that yet. Does Isaiah tell us that, okay, Isaiah 11 prophecy part one, this is going to happen, and then there's going to be a big gap, 
and then prophecy part two is going to be fulfilled. Is that how Isaiah prophesies to us in Isaiah 11, 1 to 9? No, he just simply says, when the shoot of the stump of Jesse comes, here's what's going to happen. That's what he says. Here's what's going to happen. The spirit of the Lord is going to be on him. He's going to walk in the counsel and the wisdom and the understanding of the Lord. He's going to have the fear of the Lord. And the Lord is going to delight in him. He's going to delight in the Lord. He's going to make decisions for the poor. And then he's going to utterly destroy all of the wicked with the breath of his mouth and a rod coming from his mouth. And he will establish a reign of peace and creation that the world has never seen. This is what's going to happen when the shoot comes into the world. Now, for Isaiah, remember, these things were all in the future for him. These things were all in the future. Isaiah prophesied about 700 to 750 years before Jesus came. So for Isaiah, as he was looking through the spirit of Christ, the things that were coming, he didn't necessarily always make a distinction that we now understand. He just simply says, when the shoot shows up, Here's what's going to happen. Now, because we live on this side of the first coming of Christ, we have the added privilege of understanding, oh, some of these things have already been fulfilled, and some of these things have yet to be fulfilled. The shoot of Jesse has come, and the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And he did minister with the wisdom and the counsel of the Lord. And he did render judgment and justice for the poor. But he hasn't slain the wicked yet. He hasn't established peace and creation yet to the point that bears and goats and lions and all are getting along fine. Now, Isaiah didn't make that distinction, and he didn't have to. As he was looking through the spirit of Christ, to the future, to him, it was all the future. To him, it was all the future. These were all things that were coming. They were all in his future. Years ago, someone described this for me in a way that was incredibly helpful. If you are standing hundreds and hundreds and miles away from mountains, from where you are standing, it may appear as if those mountains are right next to each other. If you're standing 200 miles from the Rocky Mountains, it may appear that those two peaks are right next to each other because you're hundreds of miles away. But then as you actually start walking closer and closer and closer and closer to those mountains, what you realize is, wow, those mountains are actually kind of far apart. You see, Isaiah was standing some 750 years before the shoot from the stump of Jesse would come into the world at all. So as he was looking at things that were going to happen when Jesus comes into the world, not at all being inaccurate or deceptive or confused, he's just simply saying, look, when the one in the line of David comes, this is what's going to happen. You know, why did so many of Jesus' followers expect him to take up a sword and raise an army and destroy the Romans? Because they'd read 
Isaiah 11, 4b and following. And they said, okay, Jesus, you're the one, so it's time for you to slay all the wicked. That's what we want. Don't you see how easily confused his followers were? They had read Isaiah. They had read Obadiah. And they had read Joel. And they had read Malachi. And it's a day of judgment. And it's a day of wrath. And it's a day where all of the nations are gathered and judged by the Lord. That's what they thought would happen when the Messiah would come into the world. But again, the Old Testament prophets were looking at these mountains from a distance. And they were just simply describing the mountains. It's not inaccurate at all to describe these mountains from a distance. What we have now come to understand is that as we got closer to the mountains, and as one of these mountains actually took place, oh, some of these mountains are not as close as we thought they were. But in fact, in a moment when we jump into the New Testament, the New Testament is still going to see them from a theological perspective as being very close. So what we see here is that when we are reading the Old Testament, as it is looking to the future, it may not be finally making distinctions between things that happened when Jesus came the first time and things that will happen when Jesus comes a second time. As we see in Isaiah 11, sometimes those things are completely woven together. But it's so important for us to understand this, to understand the time that we live in, and to understand how the New Testament sees these things. Okay? So let me just pause here again to see if there are any comments or any questions about this before we jump to some passages in the New Testament. I just wonder if it would be accurate to say that um, when it says that um, the wicked were slain, um, when Jesus was on the cross, sin was judged. And although we have, I'm trying hard to describe what's in my head here. Yeah, um, take your time, please. The idea of kind of like a down payment, like the way the infilling of the Holy Spirit was a down payment to show that our relationship with the Lord really is being restored. Um, on the cross, the wicked were judged. Jesus took that judgment. Um, and then the verses that describe um the lion laying with the lamb, the um, the destruction of the wicked is a more complete fulfillment of those passages. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, you know, we're going to take some time now to unpack that more fully. I would say initially, as New Testament readers of the old, when we look at something like, say, Isaiah 4, verse 4b, it probably is pointing to final judgment. Um, we actually had these on the, the sheet that I gave out a couple of years ago. But if you look at 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it's an interesting description that Paul gives us here. It's part of a larger 
passage that we won't take the time to read. It says, and then the lawless one or the man of lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So there is the ultimate manifestation of evil, the man of lawlessness being destroyed by the breath of Jesus upon his return. Another passage, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. This is a description of the return of Jesus Christ. It says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's Revelation 19, 15. So it seems there that what Paul is picking up on and John is picking up on in these passages is the kind of judgment that Isaiah is describing in 4b. But the point that you're making, Gail, is 100% right, which is it's both. And that's something that we're going to take the rest of our time tonight to start to unpack. So absolutely what you're saying is right. Because, you know, one of the ways that we understand the coming of Christ into the world is he has come once and he's coming again. So when he came the first time, he started to establish things. And when he comes a second time, he will bring to completion what he has started to establish. And that's why, you know, it's so important that we understand eschatology to rightly understand the New Testament age, to rightly understand the time in which we are living and how we are to live our daily life. Um, you know, if you really grab hold of some of the things that we're going to talk about next, it will completely transform how you live your Christian life. You know, some of us look at the word eschatology and like, you know, that's kind of a complex theological word, but it becomes incredibly practical. And it really ties in directly with what Gail is saying here, this idea of things beginning to be fulfilled and yet awaiting their ultimate fulfillment. But this, this Isaiah passage is a perfect example of that. You know, here's what's going to happen. Isaiah is standing 750 years before Jesus comes into the world. Here's what's going to happen when Messiah comes into the world. And now we see, oh, it's begun, but it's not done. Fulfillment has started, but it hasn't been completed. Remember, so we talked about eschatology as being present or being future. And rather than saying either or, we are saying both. So sometimes the word that's used is inaugurated. So you may read or hear somebody talk about inaugurated eschatology. All that means is the things that have come about right now, the things that are present and happening right now. And then you hear people talk about future eschatology, which is the things that still are on the horizon, not only for Isaiah and the other prophets, but on the horizon for us. This is no longer on our horizon. This is in our rearview mirror. And that's exactly what the Lord wants us to do when we consider our perspective. So let me just give a, a simple diagram here. So here is creation, and here is a timeline. So here is the Old Testament, 
So the Old Testament is constantly looking forward. It's looking forward. It's looking forward. The passages that we read and countless other passages, it is forward looking. And then about 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes. And all of a sudden, people realize, wow, so much of what the Old Testament was looking forward to has happened. Look at all the amazing things that have happened that were prophesied about in the Old Testament. So now, here we are, living in the time of the New Testament. Well, one of the things that God absolutely invites us to do is to look backward, to remember and consider the cross. Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. So now we are absolutely to look back on some of the things that the Old Testament only looked forward to. But we also look to the future. And this is a, a lightning bolt. We look to the future, to the return of Jesus Christ. So this period of time in which we are now living, we have to look both ways. We have to have eyes on the back of our head. We have to look back to the things that happened when Christ came into the world the first time. And then we have to look to the future about the things that will happen when Christ comes into the world a second time. But for the Old Testament prophets, for Isaiah and Joel and Obadiah and Malachi, all of this was in their future. All of this was ahead for them. That's why when we read their prophecy, we see things combined. So just taking the words of Obadiah, have you been delivered? Yes. Have all of the nations been judged? No. Did Obadiah split that up for us and put it into two columns? No. Have you been restored? Yes. Have all of the nations been consumed? No. So we see now all of these things were future for the Old Testament believer. Now we are living in this time where much of this has been fulfilled, but much of it still remains to be fulfilled. But the New Testament understands that this is the end. That's the language the New Testament uses. So these are some of the passages we're going to look at next. Um, so jumping down now to the next section on the sheet that you have in front of you. It says, the New Testament, the arrival of the end of the ages. So what I want to do is have four people just find each one of these four verses. So someone just raised their hand. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Elliot. Galatians 4, 4. Camille, Hebrews 9, 26. Ted, and 1 John 2, 18. Howard, thank you. So these are all very similar. They use a little bit different language, but ultimately making the same point. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul is talking about some specific Old Testament examples. He was saying these things were written for us. How does he describe his generation? How does he describe his generation? His generation was 
those upon whom the end of the ages had come. So the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the inspired, inerrant Word of God, said 2,000 years ago, he was part of the generation upon whom the end of the ages had come. Now, most of us don't think that way. Most of us don't think the end of the ages arrived 2,000 years ago. That's how the New Testament thinks. So we need to align ourselves with how the scriptures think. Galatians 4.4, who has that? But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Yeah, obviously, it's part of a much bigger passage. But the phrase that we're looking at there is the fullness of time. When the time had fully come, Camille's translation says when the set time had fully come. But the idea here is the fullness of time, the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. When that time had arrived, what did God do? He sent his son into the world. So 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, the fullness of time had arrived. 2,000 years ago, the fulfillment of all Old Testament hope and expectation had arrived in the form of a Jewish baby. The fullness of time. Those upon whom the end of the ages had come. Hebrews 9.26, who has that for us? Otherwise, Christ would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the key phrase that we want in there is Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared. And when did Jesus appear? How does the author of Hebrews describe the time in which Jesus appeared? Well, it says he would have had to be sacrificed repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but instead he sacrificed once. But when does he appear to be sacrificed once? At the end or the consummation or the fulfillment of the ages. So in the fullness of time, Jesus comes into the world. At the end of the ages, at the consummation of the ages, he dies on a cross once. Very similar to what Paul says here. And finally, even more shocking, is 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. What does the Apostle John write there? Little children, it is the last time, as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that this is the last time. So your translation says last time. Many translations have there the last hour. So John is getting even more final than the last day, than the last week, than the last month, than the last year. John actually says, we're living in the last hour. How do they know it's the last hour? Because many antichrists have already come. Now, again, if we had more time, we could unpack what John is saying there. But the point is, when the apostle John was being inspired by the Spirit to describe the age in which he lived 2,000 years ago. 
The Spirit said, this is the last hour. Jesus appeared at the end of the ages. In the fullness of time, he was born of a woman. At the end of the ages was the generation in which Paul was anointed to be an apostle. This is the New Testament perspective. And I put all four of these up to make sure that we are convinced this is not an obscure throwaway verse that can be interpreted a couple different ways. This is John. This is Paul. This is the author of Hebrews. All of them in lockstep agreement saying when Jesus Christ came into the world, the end of the ages arrived. When Jesus Christ came into the world, the end of the ages arrived. And so you can see how they're almost picking up on the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets are saying, look, all of this stuff that we see is in the future for us. All of this stuff is in the future. We tend to emphasize the gap. We tend to emphasize, here's what happened when Jesus came the first time. Here's what happened when Jesus will come the second time. But it's interesting because one of the New Testament perspectives is, look, this is the end. This is the end. This is the end of the ages. So you hear people talk about what's going to happen in the last days. Well, I can tell you what happened in the last days. Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose and God established his church. That happened in the last days. Now, that's not how most people think. So we want to start using phrases that align with the teaching of scripture. When the Scriptures talk about the end of the ages. When the scriptures talk about the last days, it's not talking about the last year or the last three and a half years or the last couple of days before Jesus Christ returns. That's not what it's talking about. So whenever anyone says we're living in the last days, I just say absolutely, amen. Because Paul was living in the last days. Because John was living in the last days. Because the author of Hebrews was living in the last days. So yeah, of course we're living in the last days, but not the way you think. Because the entire church age is the end of the ages. The entire church age, this entire period of time is the last hour. That's what John calls it. So if someone says we're living in the last day, say, hey, I'll do you one better. We're living in the last hour. And if they say, well, how do you know that? Well, because John said it. So you understand this is not the way the American church, for the most part, processes these things. And it's not because they're being, you know, insidious and deceptive, but it's because they don't understand what the scriptures are putting in front of us. Now, well, let me pause there just to see if there's comments or questions about this, because there's one other thing that we'll get to at the bottom of the page here, and then we'll probably end with that. But, but comments or questions about this? Because for some of us, I realize this is not the way we think. Alex has a comment or a question. So this might be a little irrelevant for the purpose of this uh, today, but when we're speaking to non-believers, how do we, other than just saying God's timing, how do we talk about the fact that John is writing about the last hour 2,000 years ago? How do we kind of unpack that for someone who or even just for ourselves we're trying to understand that more coherently uh how do we unpack that 
And that's kind of in light of a way in which the non-believing world looks at the Earth's history would say that human history, if it was implanted onto a 365-day calendar, human history is the last hour or so of that year, i.e. we haven't been around that long. How can we kind of juxta put that in juxtaposition to that kind of thought process as well? Sure. No, that's an excellent question. Now, if you're talking to an unbeliever, they're probably not familiar with that church phrase, you know, we're living in the last days. Because to me, you know, one of the things that this corrects is that understanding, that we are that unique generation of the church that's living in the last days. No, every generation of the church has been living in the last days. So that emphasis that I was making earlier wouldn't necessarily apply. Two things. One is we are living in the age of fulfillment. And that's something that we're going to emphasize more when we meet in a couple of weeks. The glory of this period is this is the age of fulfillment. This is the age where all of those glorious things that the Old Testament prophets spoke of has arrived. Now, it's not here completely, like Gail said, but it is here. It is here in a way that no one living before Christ ever remotely experienced. And that's such a strong emphasis of the New Testament. You know, we are living under the blessings of God in a way that no one in the Old Testament remotely touched. So one of the things that you can emphasize to an unbeliever in that regard is, look, we are living in an incredible age of promises fulfilled of the glory of God being accessible, of God being present, of God being in our midst, of God being approachable. Phenomenal what we as New Testament believers usually disregard or ignore or downplay. But you see, one of the incredible benefits that we're seeing right now is when you start to understand eschatology from a biblical perspective, this is the age that Isaiah longed to see. This is what Ezekiel longed to see. This is what Jeremiah longed to see. You are living in it, sitting here in this you know, little fellowship hall in the middle of Center City, Philadelphia. You are living in what Isaiah longed to see, and he didn't. He died. But he said, I'm serving you guys. So one of the things that you can emphasize is this is unbelievable privilege and blessing and promise and fulfillment. That's one of the things that you can emphasize. Second thing that comes to mind, which is a repeated refrain of the New Testament, is urgency. You don't have time to waste. You do not have time to waste. Don't wait for tomorrow. Decide today. Make a decision today. Make your life count today. Live for the Lord today. Because this is the end. This is the last hour. And as Ephraim said off the microphone a second ago, at any moment, Jesus can return. So again, for an unbeliever, I would emphasize that, you know, look, today is the day of decision because there is an urgency. You know, what is one of those most strongly repeated themes at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry? Keep watch, be on guard, stay alert, watch, wait, expect. There is an urgency 
of the age in which we live. You know, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7 because of the, the, the urgency of the age. I would that not many of you would be married. That's what the point he makes there. But this idea that there is just this incredible press upon us to decide for the Lord and to live today for the Lord. And you see, what happens is our experience starts to lull us to sleep. You know, I've been alive 54 years. For 54 years, the sun has come up. So if I waste a day, if I waste a week, if I further away some time, you know, I'm probably going to live to be, you know, 60, 70, 80. That is not at all the approach of the New Testament. The New Testament never, ever, ever, ever says, hey, you got plenty of time. You'll probably live to be 70, 80, 90. So don't worry about it today. No way. The New Testament says this is it. You are living in the end of the ages. So make each moment count. So those are the two things, Alex, that come to mind that I would emphasize with an unbeliever. Just the incredible blessings of God that have been poured upon us because we are living in the fullness of time and the urgency with which the unbeliever needs to make a decision. Because there's that constant reminder of Jesus at the end of his ministry, be on watch, keep alert, stay awake. Okay? Does that help a little? Good. So I want to get to something before we end here, because there is something quite interesting in the language of the New Testament. And it has to do with the singular and the plural. So again, I want four people. Someone please find Matthew 13, 39. Would, so Karen Lewis is going to find Matthew 13, 39. Would someone, we'll probably can quote it from memory, Matthew 28, 20. Matthew 28, 20. Would someone share that with us? Volunteer? Howard? Acts 2, 17. Acts 2, 17. Would someone look that up for us? Ephraim, and then, oh, sorry, two more, John 6.39, John 6.39, who's going to be bold? Ted, Ted is always bold, thank you, Ted, and John 12.48, Elliot, okay, so what we're going to see here is there's actually a distinction in the New Testament between the end of the ages, plural, and the end of the age, between the last days, plural, and the last day. Now, again, we may not think that the singular or the plural makes much of a difference, but it does because the New Testament is putting something very important in front of us. So who has the first passage? Matthew, I think it's 13, 39. And Matthew the, 13, 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So this is a parable of planting and harvesting. And what Jesus is talking about here is when does final judgment take place? According to Matthew 13, 39, when does final judgment take place? The end of the age, singular. So the age that we are living in is the end of the ages, but this age has an end, and the New Testament refers to that as the end of this age. Okay? Matthew 28, 20. Again, most of us can quote that from memory. Who has it? Howard, please, thank you. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. His translation says world. Some translations will say the end of the age. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm with you until this whole thing finishes up. Singular. We are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. But here, as Jesus is talking, this age has an end. And he refers to it as the end of the age. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Who has that? In the last days, God say, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, your, son, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Okay, we're going to look at this passage more in a couple of weeks. But this is the apostle Peter quoting the prophet Joel, saying that what Joel prophesied had been fulfilled on the day that the Holy Spirit was given. Well, when was that? That was the last days. Peter actually adds that. That's not in Joel, in the Hebrew version or the Greek version. I thought it was. It's not. Peter actually says, this is happening in these last days. In the last days, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. But now in John, how does Jesus speak? Again, about something a little different, but almost the same language. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So not the last days, plural, but on the last day is the day of resurrection. And the last one, John chapter 12, verse 38, is that right? 1248, I'm sorry, John 1248. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So the last day is a day of judgment. So again, what we see here is a similar phrase, but with a very, very different time frame in mind. The end of the ages, the last days we are living in, and the church has been living in since Jesus came the first time. But this age has an end. The end of the age. That's how long Jesus is with us. The end of the age when there is a final harvest and judgment. The last day, the day of resurrection. The last day, the day of final judgment. So as you are reading the New Testament, make sure that you make that distinction. So on the one hand, the New Testament is looking forward to the last day the end of the age. But on the other hand, the New Testament is describing the entire time between the first and second coming and describing it as the end of the ages, the last days. Because in that sense, it's saying this is the age of Old Testament fulfillment. This is the age when all of the incredible things that God promised have come to fulfillment. Okay? Well, it's 835, so I'm not going to cover anything else. We'll get to the second page when we meet in a couple of weeks. But any quick questions or comments uh, as we close here? So I realize that some of this stuff may seem a little disconnected, but hopefully when we get to the end of the second sheet in two weeks, it will start to makes sense. So what we're trying to do is initially understand the Old Testament from an eschatological viewpoint. As the Old Testament looked to the future, how did the Old Testament speak? 
Then we're trying to understand the New Testament. As the New Testament evaluates times and ages and days, how does the New Testament understand the time in which we are living, specifically connected to what the Old Testament looked forward to? Okay? That's what we are looking at. But let me close us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And Lord, I just want to thank you so much for everyone who made the effort to be here in person. I realize most of them uh, worked hard, had a long day, and made a significant effort to be here. So thank you for that effort they made. And I pray, Lord God, that you would reward them and really honor that sacrifice that they made. Thank you also for the folks that joined on Zoom. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be nothing lost between what is done here in person and what is heard and received on Zoom. We know that you are more than able to compensate for all of those circumstances. And finally, Father, more than anything else, we just pray that you would help us to rightly understand you and to rightly understand your word. And we pray, Lord God, that as we think about these things, as we talk about these things, and ultimately as we live our daily life, we pray, Lord God, that you and your word would shape us and transform us and help us to walk in a way that honors you, that honors you. We are living in an age of incredible blessing and fulfillment, and we are living in an age of urgency. Help us to live each day in light of those things. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, just by way of quick reminder, we are not meeting next week. We will be meeting in two weeks on Wednesday, September the 28th. And if you are marking things off in your calendar, we actually will meet back to back after that. Remember, we are trying to be on the weeks that men's ministry does not meet. So we are meeting September 28th, and then we are meeting October 5th. So that is the only time that we will actually meet back to back. But thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, everyone that was on Zoom. The Lord bless you. See you all safely home.